sermon. Our first reading today is from the book of Luke. This is chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses 16 through 21. When he, being Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In our sermon text today, back in Exodus, I'm going to start at 2.25. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why this bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, Come no closer, remove the sandals for your feet, for this place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I, observe, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on the count of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering. I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. Now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So we are continuing our study of the book of Exodus. Uh, Last week, uh, we had an important milestone in the book. We saw God introduced into our story for the first time. And the big point that I made is that God appears in this story right at this time because God is revealing something to us about who he is. And as we talked about, God is a God who sees, who hears suffering and oppression and actively intervenes. As we have seen by reading Exodus through the lens of Genesis, oppression is the opposite of what God intends for his creation. God created the world specifically for life, for abundance, for flourishing, which is exactly what oppression is actively trying to prevent. Now, as we look at our sermon text today, closing out chapter 2 and beginning chapter 3, 
we see the first step in God's plan of liberation for the Israelites begin to unfold. Here we are reintroduced to Moses, who uh, was saved by death and raised in Pharaoh's very own house, whose passion for justice led him to kill an Egyptian and also to save a group of women from marauders. And we find Moses where we last left him, in Midian, living that shepherd lifestyle with the family of the daughters he had rescued at the well. Now, one thing you may have noticed, and you and every other biblical scholar throughout the ages has noticed this, and I think actually Dan a couple weeks ago brought this up, is that in chapter 2, the priest of Midian, who eventually becomes Moses' father-in-law, is named uh, Reuel. And in chapter 3, he goes by a different name. He's introduced as Moses' father-in-law, but now he's called Jethro. Uh, Now, much ink about this has been spilled over the centuries, and frankly, it's pretty boring read. But uh, most scholars seem to agree that Jethro is probably a title, while Reuel was actually his given name. Uh, And, you know, multiple names, not that unusual in the Old Testament. You know, think of Jacob, for instance. He's also called Israel. So, uh, you know, not a big deal, I really think. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But uh, just to avoid any kind of confusion about, like, hey, didn't this guy have a different name earlier? Yes. But in any event, uh, we find Moses keeping the flock of his father-in-law and herding the flock into the wilderness. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you have a bunch of grazing animals, and I assume most of you probably don't have any grazing animals, uh, well, we have kids. Uh, yeah, you know, typically what you do is you let them graze in the grass or whatever vegetation there is, and after they've eaten it all, you move on and let that grow back. Um, now, what's interesting here is that the Hebrew uses a very unusual phrase to describe where Moses is leading the flock. Its literal reading would be something like uh, Moses is leading him to the back of the wilderness, okay? So kind of a, a weird phrase here. Uh, the best guess is that uh, Moses is leading them very deep into the wilderness. And most likely this phrase is kept intentionally weird uh, because it wants to grab our attention. It wants us to ask, okay, why is Moses doing this? Why is Moses taking this flock to such an out-of-the-way out place? And, you know, really we can only speculate as to why. We're not really told. Uh, Since this is the wilderness and not like the fruited plains of Nebraska or something, uh, sometimes the shepherd would have to travel a long distance to find suitable grazing pasture. Uh, You know, who knows? Maybe Moses was supernaturally drawn to this location. We're not told. And uh, so we are left to, you know, kind of ask, you know, how much of this decision to end up in Horeb is because of Moses' circumstance and how much is God leading Moses here? And this is actually a fairly common issue that's raised in the Old Testament. We see this all the time when there's almost two explanations for something, one uh, mundane or practical and one more divine. And, of course, most of the time what the Bible's trying to tell us is both. Uh, Our lives are complicated. There's not like a a clear-cut distinction. And uh, a lot of times uh, we have very practical reasons for doing things, and a lot of times it's also the divine. So, you know, just food for thought there. But... Moses ends up in this place that is very special. Uh, here it's referred to as Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. Uh, now, we probably know it, uh, if you've grown up in Sunday school class or something like that, you probably know it better as Mount Sinai. 
this is the place where God will eventually meet with Moses and the people and the Ten Commandments and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, a really important place, and again, here's where we have two different names, uh, Horeb and Sinai. So some parts of the Bible, uh, you know, Deuteronomy talks about Horeb, other places talk about Sinai. Just one of these places where we have uh, two different names. Um, but uh, it seems that Horeb probably refers to like the region, whereas Sinai is the specific mountain. Now, in any event, while in Horeb, the angel of the Lord makes an appearance in the form of a bush that is on fire, but is not consumed by the fire as we would normally expect. And Moses' attention is naturally drawn to this bush. It seems Moses is puzzled as to why this bush is not burning up exactly as you would be. Now, it's at this point that the angel of the Lord calls Moses' name twice. And when you use a name twice, uh, it's usually of great significance in the Bible. Uh, think of another time. Uh, you remember uh, Samuel, when Samuel's called. Samuel, Samuel, you know. Uh, but let's talk about this burning bush, because there's really a lot to unpack here. Uh, what's going on here? You know, first we encounter the angel of the Lord, which is weird because, uh, you know, we talked about the angel of the Lord a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Hagar story. Um, but the angel of the Lord is kind of this mysterious figure. In some ways, the angel is separate from God, but also identical. Uh, the angel seems to represent like a localized manifestation of God that breaks into uh, uh, normal space-time. And every time the angel appears, it's a significant event. Heaven itself is invading the world. This is uh, what we call a theophany. It's a divine encounter. So this is a big deal when we see the angel of the Lord appear. Um, and then, of course, we have this famous thing. We have this bush that's on fire, but it's not being burned down. Um, now, on the surface, as you read this text, you may think, okay, well, yeah, bush that doesn't burn up. Uh, you got Moses' attention. It seems to be like an attention-getting device. Uh, but I think, actually, the text is giving us some clues that it is more than just a way to get Moses' attention. Uh, fire can be used in a lot, symbolically in a lot of different ways in the Old Testament. Uh, it can be used to describe the presence of God. Many scholars uh, think that that is what's going on here. However, um, we still need to explain why is the fire burning the bush and it's not consumed, if, if it's just about the presence of God. I mean, after all, we already have the angel of the Lord here. That's the presence of God. Um, well, I, I think more is going on than just, uh, you know, this is an attention-getting device. I think more is going on here than just, like, God is, is here. Like, like, here's something crazy. It must be divine. It must be supernatural. So, Fire is often used in the Old Testament as a symbol of judgment and suffering. Uh, so many of you may be familiar with the passage in Isaiah 43, where God tells his people uh, who have suffered uh, destruction by the Babylonians, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. That's a really famous passage. You know, that's one of those things that you see sometimes like on like, you know, pretty artwork and that kind of thing, like Christian inspirational poster kind of material. Um, but here in this verse, both the fire and the water are symbols of suffering, uh, specifically the suffering that was endured by the Israelites during the Babylonian conquest. 
And then we have the trees, bushes, and vines. Trees, bushes, and vines can, are used to symbolize people many times. At times, Israel is described as a, a vineyard or an olive tree. Uh, Psalm 1 describes the person who delights in the Lord as a strong tree planted by the river. Uh, the Psalm 80, which is what we uh, read uh, today in our call to worship, has the line, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. So here this psalm is picturing the Israelites as a vine. Now, really interesting, uh, you know, because we can't, uh, we can't have a sermon at Resurrection Church without doing some deep word studies here. So uh, the word for, for bush here that is used in this passage is a really strange one. In, in Hebrew, it's sene, okay? And the word sene contains the same consonants as Sinai. Okay, so it's probable that, you know, there's something going on here, either a wordplay or maybe that's why Mount Sinai is called Mount Sinai. But the interesting thing is Sine is a really rare word. It's really only found here in one other passage in Deuteronomy that's referring to this. Okay, no other time in the Bible do we find the word Sine. Okay, now... Um, any anytime you're talking about like plants or animals in the Bible, it's like really notoriously difficult to translate. So you know you always have to take these things with a grain of salt. But uh, from what we could tell, uh, sine refers to uh, a specific, somewhat specific class of plants, like a thorny vine. Okay, so think a bramble, like a blackberry vine. I think that's what's what most people the consensus is is going on here. Um, so, so uh, this makes good sense of the symbolism because a bramble would produce fruit, which would symbolize the inf fertility and abundance God gives to his people. So let's take all of this and put it together and see what I'm trying to see if we can pick up what I'm trying to lay down here. Uh, so what we have in the burning bush is a symbol of the suffering represented by the fire that the Israelites are experiencing in the oppression of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the bush should be burned that's the normal thing. I mean, bushes are, you know, blackberry vines are not very resilient. If you were to set them on fire, they're probably going to burn up pretty quickly. And the only way it's possible that they don't burn up is through some sort of supernatural intervention. Exactly why Moses is so confused when he sees this. Now, we have seen throughout the book of Exodus that God has been sustaining his people. You know, all the things that we've been talking about the last few weeks, you know, it should be easy for Pharaoh to like, impose all these controls on these people and wipe them out, but his plan is being thwarted at every turn. Uh, and, and so this burning bush is this powerful visual representation that is expressing both the suffering of the people as they are miraculously protected from extermination. So you've got both, both ideas here. The people are protected divinely, but also, you know, if you're on fire, okay, no matter how much you're protected from burning up, it's going to hurt, okay? So, you know, still uh, not a pleasant situation. So, and, and furthermore, if you look at this, this makes good sense to think about it in these terms, okay? Not just, you know, and, and what I mean by that is not that the burning bush is just an attention-getting device, not that it's just the presence of the Lord, but it's representing this bigger idea about suffering and divine protection. It makes good sense if you think about the context of the passage, because you'll notice that the vision of the burning bush 
is introduced, uh, you know, with these four verbs that we talked about last week. You know, the whole point of our sermon last week was that God looked, saw, remembered, and knew the oppression of his people. Um, and then we see at verse 7 that this, this idea is restated. Okay, so if you look at verse 7, the Lord says, I have seen the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on the account of the taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering. So you see three of those four verbs again. And then you have this reference to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the covenant, which is, you know, the remembering part. Um, And uh, it's at this point that uh, God tells Moses he intends to deliver them to their land. Okay. Now, the point I'm making here is that these two statements about God and God's awareness of the suffering of his people bracket the image of the burning bush. So that's like a really common literary technique. You know, if you're in the biz, you call this an inclusio. Okay, so this is an inclusio. Uh, it's bookended by these two concepts of God's paying attention. And also, if you look throughout this passage, there is a repetition of the word look or see. And that's the same Hebrew word we talked about last week, Ra. So God looks upon the Israelites in, in verse 225. In verse 32, Moses looked and sees the burning bush. Then in 3.7, God again says that he looked upon the misery of my people. In fact, in, in, in 3.7, the word look is in two different forms. It's an infinitive followed immediately by a past perfect. So it means something like, uh, so, so even though it's probably translate in your translation, it probably says, like my translation says, the Lord said, I have observed. Really, you should read that as, I have looking, I looked, or, or looking upon the people I looked. So there's this like intensification. There's like a, a more of, of, a, of an, obs- than a mere passing observation going on here. Which means... Uh, And what this all means here, and the reason I'm taking so much time to lay this out, is because it means this passage is trying to get something across to us. It's trying to make an equivalence here between what God is seeing when he looks at the plight of the Israelites and the burning bush. Okay? You get that? Like, the burning bush is like what's in God's mind. God is revealing to Moses, using this dramatic phenomenon exactly what God is seeing when he views his people suffering under the Egyptian oppression. Now, at first, you might think, okay, how is that really an important point? You may wonder why I spent so much time trying to set it up, but I think it's actually a really big deal. And here's why. Because it tells us something really incredible about God, okay? By showing Moses the burning bush... What the text is doing is it's trying to show us that God is not just aware of the fact that the Israelites are suffering. Rather, what we learn is that God experiences the suffering of the Israelites. And to God, their oppression is like a vine that should be growing and producing fruit, yet is on fire. Not dying, but suffering incredibly. And definitely not fulfilling the purpose that God has set it out for. God is experiencing all of this as he sees the Israelites. And one of my favorite Jewish uh, theologians, uh, whose name is Abraham Heschel, he describes this, and I think this is the, w- the best way to describe it, is he sees this as giving Moses and giving us a picture of what's called the divine pathos. That's the term he uses. Now, 
Pathos is this really academic word. It's not a word that we like use in our everyday conversation unless like we're rhetoric professors. Chris isn't here. Every time I come up with something for someone, they're not here. Okay, so, so let's talk about pathos. What do I mean by pathos? Okay, so pathos is this term. It's this like feeling of misfortune or suffering or pity or sadness. So like literature tries to do this or, or like a song tries to do this or like a play tries to do this. It tries to evoke that motion of, of pity or suffering or sadness in it. It's about being moved by an event. Uh, so we discussed this concept a little bit in last week's sermon when we talked about what it means for God to know. And remember, the key word in Hebrew for knowing is it's not just awareness of a fact, but an intimate experiential knowledge. Okay, you remember when I talked about the, uh, the Mount Mitchell placemat at the fish camp? Okay, I don't need to do that story again. Yeah, my, my kids love when I tell that story. Um, but it's this intimate experiential knowledge of God that I am calling here the divine pathos. And it's being demonstrated in this burning bush. And, and what that means and why this is important is it means that the burning bush is allowing Moses to understand and participate in God's pathos as God hears the groaning of the Israelites and sees their suffering. And what that means is that God is more than just a power or a force, okay? God is more than an impersonal power or force, right? That means that God is feeling the persecuted of his people and he's moved by the suffering. And that means that God is personal. And that means that God exists in a real relationship with his people. And so that's why my point about the burning bush is a big deal. Because what, what Moses is seeing is that God is a different sort of God. God is not, he, he's, he's seeing the qualities of God are being shared with Moses and for us. Now, I want to get a, a little disclaimer here. Because I'm certain that God is a being beyond human emotion, all right? And that using human emotions is not quite accurate to describe God. Uh, I'm sure it's what we would call uh, anthropomorphic language. Like the text is using language that like we understand to describe God. But guess what? Most of our language about God is like anthropomorphic. I mean, we can't explain a being such as God using like normal concepts and terms. Because, because God's not a being that can be reduced to that. Uh, in fact, that's probably spoiler alert going to be next week's sermon. Okay. But the point here is that this is how God is choosing to reveal himself. He wants us to think of him as a being who is moved to pity and, and by suffering of others. That, he's, that, that, he, that we participate in this pathos as well. That's how God wants us to understand him. And while we may not use pathos in our everyday language, we're actually really familiar with the opposite of pathos. Okay, anybody know what the opposite of pathos is? Can you give me a word? Apathetic. You've heard that word before, right? So God is not apathetic. That's what's going on here. Okay, and, and so that's what the burning bush kind of tells us. And so God is not like this rational, abstract uh divine being that like our philosophers might like want be comfortable with god is personal and relational he is moved and that's why that's important and so what i'm I'm getting at here is that that while that's like a really important thing about god i think that this text makes another really important point as well so that's just one so, so we can have fun with this uh, theological debate about the doctrine of the impassivity of God. 
Um, but there's something more going on here. Because a God that feels and is moved uh, by suffering makes a big difference to us. So if you'll remember a few weeks ago, I introduced this concept uh, called the type scene. Okay, Anybody remember the type scene? Um, yeah, if you'll remember, we looked at that, that story about Moses at the well uh, in Midian. And I pointed out that when we have a scene at a well, it's a recurring story throughout the Old Testament that follows several repeated features. That's what I mean by a type scene. Uh, a type scene is just a, a signal about co- what kind of story we're hearing. So, for example, if we're at home and we hear, like, it, we, we turn on the TV and we hear David Attenborough's voice and we see uh, animals and amazing landscapes, we know because of those features we're watching a nature documentary. Right? So we don't expect like aliens to evade and attack the earth all of a sudden in that movie. That would be like the wrong that would be like the wrong type of story. So so you know there's certain key features we hear and we know what kind of story we're dealing with. Uh, so so it turns out, like I said, that this passage is another one of those type scenes. What kind of type scene is it? Well, it's the first in a series of type scenes in the Old Testament called the prophetic call. Okay, Moses is being called out by God as a prophet. Uh, this is kind of the first time uh, God's appeared to humans and given them messages before. But the key characteristic of a prophet <clears throat> is that God gives the person a message to share with others. Okay, that's what it means to be a prophet. And, and until this point, we haven't seen that. But Moses is being commanded to take this message of God about liberation for the Israelites both to Pharaoh and to his people. Now, in a prophetic call type scene, a prophetic call type scene, uh, the person, the, the key characteristics here, the person is called out by God individually, Moses, Moses, right? There's a divine encounter where heaven breaks into the barrier in earthly space, okay? So, so think about like Isaiah, for instance. You know, Isaiah's call scene in the year the King Uzziah died, I was taken up high and into the heavens. You know, there's this like breaking down of the barrier between the, the heaven and earth, between the divine world. Uh, oftentimes there's a vision, and the vision is related to the message that the person is supposed to give. Uh, so, you know, for example, Jeremiah sees this almond tree and there's this whole message about almond trees or, you know, Isaiah is given like this burning coal to eat or, or given a burning coal that touches his lips and Ezekiel is given a bitter scroll to eat. They're given these weird visions a lot of times. And typically the person raises an objection. Like Jeremiah says, I'm too young. Okay. Uh, here Moses is like, you know, who am I that you would send me? You know, we later on know that uh, he's going to talk about how he's like, he can't talk, okay? Uh, you know, he's he's slow of speech and, you know, whatever. Anybody ever watch the Ten... Does anybody... Everybody knows the Ten Commandments, right? You know that movie? Isn't it weird, that part where Charlton Heston, like, says to God, like, you know, God, why are you sending me? I am slow of speech. I stutter and stammer. It's like, you're Charlton Heston for crying. It doesn't make sense. Like, Jimmy Stewart should have played Moses. But anyway, I digress. Okay, but we have this objection raised, and God usually answers that objection with this assurance of his presence. You know, I will be with you. And so we see all these characteristics of the prophetic call scene here. Um, now, the point is that then if we're given this vision that somehow relates to the message, then the burning bush is part of the message, okay? 
uh, the burning bush is this divine pathos calling for action by Moses and the people because this oppression cannot be allowed by God any longer. The God of life, abundance, and flourishing, the God of creation can no longer ignore the suffering of the Israelites. It's too much. The plight of the Israelites has become intolerable to God. And so God must, must send a prophet. He's compelled to call out the injustice and challenge the power that has imposed this injustice in violation of his will for creation. And we've already seen Moses has like this passion for justice. We've seen it kind of worked out in like positive ways and negative ways. You know, he, he kills the Egyptian overseer because he sees him beating the Israelite. He also uh, saves, uh, saves the uh, Midian uh, uh, ladies from the uh, marauding shepherds, right? Um, and, and so it's this passion for, mo- for justice that Moses has that God is coming to and meeting him and guiding him about. Uh, and that's what it means to be a prophet, right? So we usually think of prophets as these weird mystics that see signs and make predictions and stuff like that. But, you know, predictions and signs aren't really what being a prophet's about. Predictions and signs are merely a means to a bigger goal uh, of judgment for the oppressor, uh, the oppressors and visions of God's plan for life, abundance, and flourishing to the world. So those kind of things that we think of as like key ideas about prophecy are really subservient to this bigger idea about bringing justice into the world. That's what being a prophet's about, being upset at what's going on, about being upset that uh, people are being kept from abundance and life and flourishing and wanting to do something about it. Now, as the story of the Bible continues, we have Jesus, and Jesus comes to the world announcing the kingdom of God. Uh, he's the greatest prophet. There's a passage in Deuteronomy that talks about this prophet that will one day come. That's who Jesus is. And our passage from Luke is how Jesus announces his agenda in the gospel of Luke. Jesus uh, picks up the scroll from Isaiah, Isaiah being the prophet. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To do what? What is, what is Jesus' message? Proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is once again, you know, uh, delivering this message. God is upset at what is being happening to his creation, what is happening to his people. He, he, He sees he sees the suffering, you know, it, it, it moves him and he has to do something about it. And so Jesus rolls up the scroll and he declares that that's exactly what he's going to do. He has come to challenge the powers that would oppress his people and bring God's plan of life flourishing and abundance to his creation. And here's the thing. We as Jesus's followers, as the church, we participate in this prophetic call and voice as well. That is part of who we are. That is part of our witness in the world. That is when it talks about prophesying. Like I said, it's not about making weird predictions and, you know, appearing on uh, televangelist shows and talking about how the world's going to end in, you know, 2024. That's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is about being upset at the fact of what is wrong with creation. And, and so what we have to do is we have to be a, we need to be a passion for those who are without power. We need to be moved just like God is. We need to participate in this divine pathos. We have to care 
about those who have been left out, who suffer, who are hurt, who are not the winners in this world. And one of the, the distinctive features of the religion of the ancient Israelites is that their duty to God was not just a private affair. Uh, and we are, we are to be inspired. We are to be inspired, but for the sake of others, to give of ourselves uh, because of love of our neighbor. That's part of what it means to love God. Love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus' whole ministry was about this. Think about it. He was, uh, he was challenging the leaders, but he met and ate with the outcasts. He called out the corruption of the powerful, but he forgave the sinners. He demanded that those who were left out have a seat at the table. He declared that the ones who mourned were actually the ones blessed and promised that they would be comforted. He died a death so, uh, so that many, uh, uh, for, for those who had been crushed by their oppressors. And from now on, the first will be last and the last will be first. Freedom, life, and abundance was the message that Christ brought to the world. Now, as the church, we need to participate in this. We need to reclaim this prophetic vision of who we are. We need to listen and to have our hearts moved by others. We don't need to be apathetic, in other words. Like God, we need to feel passionately concerned, outraged, and love and pity for others. So that's the message today. Let us be a people who wisely and with discernment look to use our prophetic voice in Hillsborough and in the world. Let us be a people who are not afraid to challenge the status quo and to provide a voice for others. Let us be a people who grieve for those who have been wrong. It won't ignore who the world so desperately wants us to ignore. Let us be a people who energize, build up, and inspire others with a vision of mercy, justice, and love for the God whom we serve. 